Welcome to the Mama Needs a Moment podcast. We're your hosts, Cindy and Chrissy, co-founders of Her Health Collective. We are two moms obsessed with changing the ideals and expectations of motherhood. Every other week, we dive into the topics that matter to moms most, answering your most pressing questions as we learn from top-notch experts, swap stories, tap into our creative sides, and advocate for the causes that moms truly care about, all while hanging with your mom friends. We are so glad you're here. Let's dive in. We are Her Health Collective. We are working on four key initiatives this year. All are geared towards our central mission of health empowerment and respect for every mom. We are focusing our discussion today on one of those key initiatives, which is the topic of equitable care for mothers. According to the 2010 Amnesty International report, most women in the U.S. are not dying during childbirth because of the complexity of their health conditions, but because of the barriers they face in accessing high-quality maternal care, particularly those who are poor or face racial discrimination. We are faced with a system that is not adequately caring for its mothers. This is a fact that needs to be heard far and wide, and we need all parties to take part in this conversation to try to figure out the best way to deal with this crisis. Today, we are honored to be joined by several of our 2021 Her Expert panelists. They are going to be discuss- discussing improving equitable outcomes in maternal care and sharing insights from within their own respective industries on this particular topic. So today we are joined by Emily Chaffee. Emily is a fertility and birth doula. Emily, can you just pop in and say hi so everyone knows who you are? Yes, hi, I'm Emily Chaffee. I own Carolina Birth and Wellness. <laughs> Love it. We are also here with Blair Cuneo. She is a physician's assistant and functional medicine provider. Hi, cleaning crew in the office, me in a vacuum. <laughs> Happy it's to be Friday, here. Friday, right? <laughs> Very excited to be a part of this important conversation. Thank you, Blair. And we have Dr. Erkita De Rowan. She is an MD, double board certified family medicine and lifestyle medicine physician. Hi, everyone. I'm excited to be here and talk about this important topic. Awesome. Then we have Dr. Holly Durney. Dr. Durney is a physical therapist and APTA orthopedic certified specialist. Hey, everybody. I'm Holly. Um, I work for Smart Athlete Physical Therapy and am pioneering their women's health and care um, prenatal and postpartum program. Awesome. And we also have Dr. Lisa Folden joining us, but I don't believe she's here yet. Is that correct? Dr. Folden should be hopping in. Um, She is a physical therapist and mom-focused lifestyle coach. And then last but certainly not least, we also have Nicole Wallace. She is a licensed clinical mental health counselor and educator. Hi, everybody. I'm so happy to be here and I'm really excited about this topic. Thank you for the invite. Awesome. Thank you, everybody. Let's go ahead and dive in to our moms that are on the call. If you have any questions or thoughts at any point, feel free to use the chat. And if time allows at the end, Cindy or I will definitely work those questions into the conversation. Great. So moving on to our first question, in Article 25, 
of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, it states that health equity means that everyone has the opportunity to have the highest attainable level of health and is recognized as an essential human right. And even though this has been in effect, the declaration has been in effect since 1948, which was towards the end or after, just after the uh, World War II, statistics are showing that disparities exist. In your experience, how equitable is care in your specific industry across racial and economic lines? And why do you believe this is the case? I guess I can go first. I think that that was a great question. And it's crazy that that came out in the 40s because we're still fighting for it as one of the only industrialized Western countries without universal health care. Um, there is a lot up for debate as to whether or not health care is a right versus a privilege. And at this point in time, with the way that our health care system is set up, set up more for the privileged. And that's been something that has been happening for centuries. And we can see now, even with the global pandemic, that there are healthcare disparities out there. African-American people are dying about 2.8 times more from COVID-19 than their general population. And we've seen through many things, and I'm sure we'll get into it today about like the maternal healthcare rates and things like that. So I think in this industry, it's, it's just something that we just have to learn how to figure out a way to be more equitable. There are, there's a lot of information I know just stemming from all of the racial discussions that we had last year, stemming from the George Floyd incident where people are becoming more hyper aware of the disparities. And now we just have to get to the work of how to be more inclusive and how to search for ways in order to help people to get the care that they deserve. And following up, Blair, following up on that, what Dr. Duran just mentioned is I think also there's an increasing awareness that we're not just talking about literal access to healthcare, because that is 100% important, but then also understanding what it means to be healthy. And maybe it is not access to that nurse practitioner or to that pharmacy, but it is environmental justice, it is social justice, it's housing security, it is um, more than simply just the visit with the doctor when we're thinking about why are there, why are there the disparities in populations between who has, who has health and wealth and who has access. Yeah, I'd just like to piggyback on that as far as um, a lot of times when we think about people who are receiving government provided health care, Medicaid or Medicare, we think of it as an entitlement, like, oh, they're getting this free thing. And then if you really look closely at it, oftentimes that entitlement comes with a lot of restrictions and a lot of pre-authorizations that doesn't allow them to receive quality care. Um, for example, in my field as a counselor, as I entered private practice, I learned from a lot of my from other counselors that were also involved in private practice that they often would not engage in taking government healthcare, Medicaid or Medicare, because the feedback, the fees were not the same. Uh, what they would receive in monetary fees was not the same as they would receive as private practice or if a client was paying self-pay 
And so they didn't see the benefit in it, which is really sad in some respects. I was going to say, physical therapy, that definitely rings true. We have to basically double up all of our commercial patients to make up for the Medicare population in order to make money. Um, So you'll find a lot of private physical therapy practices don't take Medicare or Medicaid because of that. Um, So I I think I was going to just spin it a little bit and talk about... um, the fact that it's not necessarily the access for care and PT, like we would accept all insurances and, but it's more the knowledge that physical therapy is almost a luxury in a way. Like, of course I have pain, my back hurts. Like, you know, I work all day. I have five kids, you know? Um, so it's a time thing. It's a, um, I think, um, I can't remember who said it, but talking about what it means to be healthy so that there's just this, I don't have time to take care of myself. Um, I'm not in, with mothers in particular, bringing it full circle to what her collective is doing, but um, that there's this, this lack of knowledge of, well, you know, you can do something about your pain and yes, insurance covers it. Um, so that there is, there are, there is access to care. There are some hoops to jump through, but um, perhaps, but that I think just hopefully through today and through conversations, expanding the knowledge that there are things that can be done for not just women, but for these populations. So I was going to add that as a doula, I've really noticed that there's two schools of thought with doula care. There's that everyone deserves a doula and that a doula is very much a luxury item. And, but the evidence shows that having a doula present is going to improve health outcomes with birth, with postpartum, and just in general. So it's really interesting to kind of be on this other side where, you know, with other providers who are more or who are licensed, right? Doulas aren't licensed. So anyone can be a doula. I'm in conversations right now to start accepting Medicaid in July, but the amount that they are going to reimburse at is about 50% of our normal rate. So we're kind of struggling with, is this something that we really want to do? And is this something that we can do as a small business? It just might not be attainable. And then that puts a whole nother issue in play, I think. Okay. Thank you so much, everybody. According to the Black Women Birthing Justice 2018 report, Battling Over Birth, Black Women and the Maternal Healthcare Crisis, we identified four sets of practices and attitudes that led to conflict between medical staff and Black pregnant women. One, refusal to listen to women's wisdom about their bodies. Two, not respecting women's boundaries or bodily autonomy. Three, stereotyping based on race, class, age, and marital status. And four, suppressing advocacy and self-advocacy. We would love for you to discuss your thoughts on these findings. Have you witnessed these practices and attitudes in your own industry? As a family physician, while I don't currently practice obstetric care, I have in the past, and, and you can definitely see just moving through different populations and and more underserved areas, at least, there there is a kind of a paternalistic aspect of medicine where you're not always use, utilizing and listening to a woman's voice. And personally, I think that is something that, that's currently happening. We see it in the news. We see what happened with Serena Williams. We see um, Beyonce came out and said that they, she had to advocate for herself for things. And if you think about people who have all of these resources and if they are still having these issues of being ignored, you can only imagine what's happening with the lay population. Personally, my cousin last year was pregnant with her first child and there were some issues with not listening to her body when she didn't have fetal movement and she actually had a stillborn and that was terrible. But despite all of that, when she went home, there were still complications 
and she was trying to advocate for herself and call and wasn't getting the help. And and I actually had to call and kind of pull the doctor card at the with the office to speak to a patient advocate. And when that happened, they realized that she had an infection. So if people just listen and don't advocate for themselves when things feel off, um, I know a lot of times different clinicians may kind of roll their eyes when a patient is saying, I know my body, but sometimes you may need to listen to them because because things can be abnormal. So I have two aspects to add to this. Um, first, from a personal standpoint, my when I was pregnant with my son five years ago, almost six years ago now, I actually was not heard by my doctor. I was quoting ACOG research to him and he was going against ACOG research. And luckily he's retired now, but his practice is still in play. And to hear as a patient be like, no, you're wrong. That 40% chance of a stillbirth in three weeks, that's not a big deal. We'll wait until we get there. And it just, it makes me really wonder, like I, I called my cousin who's a high risk OB and she was like, absolutely not go in, say you have de- decreased fetal movement and demand that induction. But if I didn't have those resources and that knowledge to be able to do that, you know, how do you advocate for yourself when you don't know what is normal? So that's really what I think doulas are really good at because we are able to help clients find their voice and help them say like, no, this doesn't feel out of the scope of, or this feels out of the scope of normal. It's time for you to say something. And rather than somebody else being like, hey, hey, doctor, hold up. And, you know, I mean, uh, if you're a doctor, obviously that holds weight, but not as a doula. And I think that coming from a patient is really powerful, but really hard to find those words. Uh, as a physical therapist, I'm dealing with urinary incontinence and prolapse um, postpartum. And that's the main diagnosis that I get referral for. And I would say the knowledge is poor in general to, about um, to women to know that there's something that, that they can do um, about urinary incontinence. It's not just because you had a baby that you're going to have incontinence issues, which is common. But I even read a few studies prepping for today's roundtable and was shocked and also not surprised in, at the same time. Um, in the racial disparities um, amongst African-American women and then Asian women as well. Not only does the knowledge not exist, but not knowing that there's anything that they can do about it just in polling different populations. So I find in general, the referrals, um, sometimes even just regardless of race, that I have struggled to get referrals from OBs to tell women, to empower women, yes, there's something you can do. Um, but even more so that that amongst the African-American population, I can't tell you the last time I received a referral for um, an African-American woman for pelvic floor dysfunction. Now, again, it's a smaller percent of the patients that I see. So, um, you know, that's my personal experience. And I hope to continue to improve that. But I think just in general, having the knowledge that these women can advocate for themselves to their doctors, and even if um, they are advocating, the doctors aren't listening, but also even just letting them know that there is something to advocate for in the first place. I think maybe that's somewhere that we could could make a change. It sounds like I'm piggybacking off of what's being said already, but that you can push for, hey, I just need a physical therapy referral or a, I need a doula or you know, um, I, I need to talk to someone about this, just uh, helping women know that there is something that they can do so they can advocate for themselves, I think um, is really important. Yeah, and I think in saying that, recognizing that we do have to encourage clients to advocate for themselves, but we really have to do a better job on the side of clinicians and those of us who give care. I'm a mother, a biological mother of four, a mother of five. So I've experienced birth three different ways. <laughs> and, uh, I have to say each time was very stressful in the fact that um, I did feel the concern that when I would advocate for myself, 
I had to question whether or not I would be heard or understood, not just because, you know, you're a woman, I'm a clinician, I know best, which I think many women go through, uh, especially since a lot of the people who you're dealing with when you're in the care of, in the process of having a baby, there's a lot of male physicians who may not always be in touch with what you're, what you're experiencing, but to have to go through that as a woman, but then to have to go through that and question myself around, is it because of my race and the color of my skin, am I going to be heard? And are they going to listen to me? And are they going to understand the special needs and concerns that I may have? And that is stress inducing all over again, because you're having to play this game with yourself of, are they hearing me? But are they hearing me because I'm a woman? Are they not hearing me because I'm a, a female of color? Like, so I think we really have to educate our providers around the fact that to have those difficult conversations, to stop and check in with the people you're providing service for and make sure that their emotional wellness um, is intact and that you're recognizing that that may be an issue for them. Making the assumption of whether or not someone has the opportunity to go see someone like Holly, but also the assumption that they're is going to be the, the patient awareness in the first place. And so it takes that provider to keep pushing, to have no colorblind approach, to have that targeted. There are studies showing that this is underreported in these populations. You know what, our team needs to intentionally be capturing, are we missing them in our practice and tailoring um, to ensure it is not only the provider's not thinking about it, or they're making the assumption that you can or cannot have support there, or that you are aware of that this is not, I think all women here could say someone tried to normalize something that was not okay. But then on the other part of that, what if in that community, there's become a normalization amongst their peers and their family of, no, that everybody had to deal with that. So I think, uh, again, intentionally challenging clinicians to capture what's being missed and not making assumptions. Great. Thank you so much. There was a lot of wonderful insight there, as well as an appreciation for sharing any of your personal stories. So thank you so much for that. Moving on to question number three, one key recommendation offered by numerous stakeholders is to recruit and train more birth workers and healthcare professionals of color. Do you see this being a needed change in your particular industry? And in your personal view, how would a more diverse and representative healthcare industry improve maternal care and outcomes for women of color in this country? I, I thought this question was great because I thought of it from twofold, from being at the recipient end of care and then also of delivering care. And I feel like whenever I am in a difficult situation or approaching a problem or or some, I, I want some reflection of myself. I want something that I'm familiar with to enter into a vulnerable space. And especially with being a mom, questions, anatomy, child rearing, all of the, all the balls to juggle. It can be more uh, comforting if the person on the other side of that table, on the other side of that Zoom call, your provider is someone where you see some, some let's say a similarity or a connection. And so, our, our women of color are missing that when they cannot find, it might seem 
very superficial, but I can only assume how much that means to someone and maybe even can provide a more welcoming space right off the bat without. um, And then from the other perspective of as a provider amongst peers, I don't want to be in an echo chamber. I don't want to just be hearing what has worked for the majority of the patients that I'm seeing. I don't know what I don't know. And when I am in a group of peers who are bringing about different perspectives from their background and from their experiences, their training, it's just going to help me operate in a more thoughtful way for if I am engaging in someone who has either a different color of skin, a different socioeconomic status, so that I'll feel more empowered to say, let's talk about something that's uncomfortable and I'm allowed to not know. It's not the one thing I love about where I work. It's, it's a partnership and it's not supposed to, I'm not supposed to have all of the answers, but I'm supposed to create a setting in which there is that openness and conversation and not a blind ignorance of thinking I know best. I totally agree with what Blair said. And just from my industry, I guess for the listeners out there, my name is Arkita Darowin. I'm a family physician. So in medicine, in in family, in uh, as physicians, I think that I recently read that Black people make up five percent of all physicians. So just imagine what percentage of that is it taking care of women who are having children. And those numbers have not changed since 1978. So it's been 40 years and the numbers have stayed the same. And Black men's numbers actually have decreased from about 3.4% to 2%. So there is definitely a need for more diversity because as Blair said, when we're creating these guidelines and we're, we're learning about like the cultural competence of different cultures, it's important to have different people from different backgrounds in the room in order to create that and, and to show those blind spots. And with that being said, if only 5% of all doctors are Black, then there's 95 who aren't. And so that means that we have to have allies out there, people who are willing to learn and willing to engage with their patients. And if you don't know something, it's okay to say you don't know. Ask. Don't make assumptions because we know with everyone in everyone's communities. Your community, even in your own family, isn't a monolith. So you may have a different perception of something than your parents or your sister or something. So ask patients why they're feeling this way. Ask about their background and their home life and and what may be going on. And maybe you can meet and figure out ways to engage them better. I think that we are having these conversations more and more. So I think that more people are starting to realize that we can make a lot of movement in a positive direction if we just learn from one another. So I think it's also important to note that, um, right, that there was a study recently that said Black babies are more likely to survive, not just thrive, but actually survive when they're taking care of a Black pediatrician. Mm -hmm. And what there's like two Black pediatricians in this area. There's two Black home birth midwives. There's or one Black home birth midwife, one Black midwife. And I think there's a f- maybe one or two OBs that are Black. And that's to cover the triangle. Mm-hmm. And we live in a very diverse area, but yet the representation is not there in the medical community. I think in the doula community, it's getting there. Mm-hmm. I think the conversations are really happening in the doula world. Um, there's a lot more almost requirement 
that you acknowledge it, you know, this colorblind, like I don't see color thing is not acceptable anymore, definitely in the the doula world. And I hope that that is translating to getting more black doulas. And same with IBCLCs, lactation consultants, there's only two, I believe, black IBCLCs in this area. And that is not enough. And exactly. And, and you bring up great points, even like with lactation things, because there are cultural differences mm-hmm. and certain environments may push to not breastfeed and things like that. And, and, and certain people have certain per, uh, perceptions on what that is. And we also bring up another interesting point as a lot of the studies and things that we are talking about are about our African-American population, but there are even fewer numbers in the Latinx community and in the indigenous community. And we we don't need to forget them as well because in my last job before this, I worked in a federally qualified health center where 50% of my patients were either undocumented or uninsured. So that's a whole nother realm of a lot of mothers coming in with all of these perceptions that you may not know about or beliefs or fears that they may not be comfortable sharing with you. We were also joined by Dr. Lisa Folden in the middle of the last question. So hello to Dr. Folden. And right now we're just discussing key recommendations offered by different stakeholders and recruiting and training more birth workers. Did anybody have any other thoughts on that particular question? Hi, Christy. This is Dr. Lisa. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm so glad I was able to jump on. I absolutely agree. Coming from the background of, of as a physical therapist, we have similar um, numbers. 5% or less of physical therapists are uh, Black here in this country. And so, yeah, something has to be done. I... <laughs> I've always found this to be odd, but when I I moved from Michigan and where I earned my degree in West Michigan was pretty segregated, I guess, if you will. And so when I moved down here to Charlotte, North Carolina, and I was aware of the diversity that I would see, you know, it's kind of cool. It's like, well, I'm going to kind of be able to be in like one neighborhood with all kinds of different people. You know, I looked forward to that. And so I made the assumption that when I made that transition, I would automatically be confronted with more people of color in my profession. And I was shocked to find that that was not the case. I was like completely floored. I'm like, you make the assumption if you move somewhere where there are more people of, you know, diverse, you know, skin tones and, and, you know, backgrounds and racial and ethnic makeups that you're going to be able to find that in your field. And I did not. So um, as a professional, it was disappointing. And I did also find it very, you know, interesting that I would have clients directly contacting me because I was black. (laughs) It was like, I was looking for a physical therapist, black physical therapist. And, and I'm like, well, I am black, you know, let's talk about what you're coming for and make sure I can actually help you. (laughs) But, but I do, there's clearly a need and um, it's expressed. Like I said, being a black woman, it is expressed to me directly when clients reach out to me. And I do, I work with women postpartum in my practice as well, but it's definitely requested, but I do feel like it's sort of an uncomfortable topic for some people and or a little taboo. And so, you know, I am, I am happy to be a provider to, I don't know, bridge that gap and make them feel more comfortable. Again, making sure I can actually help them with what they're coming to me for. But I guess for me, it starts with, you know, just trying to let people know that my field even exists, or I guess, you know, in other 
disciplines, getting the word out, you know, that like that we're here, we exist. This is how you can get into this industry because it's really important to have that diversity. Everything you guys said was, you know, in my opinion, spot on. You know, you need, we do better when we have more diverse people at the table, period. So that's all I had to add there. This episode is sponsored by Her Circle, the supportive and welcoming community for moms created by Her Health Collective. Her Circle is a welcoming and supportive community for moms who are passionate about making change for themselves, their families, the community, and the world. Together, this village of women are revolutionizing the way moms take care of themselves. From an active, private online community and the incredible daily chats hosted there, to our many virtual gatherings, including support groups, Moms Night Out, volunteer opportunities, book club, family adventures, coffee chats, and so much more. We love providing moms the chance to connect and create authentic relationships with one another. The network of experts in her circle are a phenomenal resource and provide great learning experiences for moms on topics ranging from women's health to parenting. We cover the issues that matter to moms the most, from virtual expert Q&As to one-on-one Wellness Minute consultations and support groups. We are committed to getting moms in front of the information, experts, and support they need most. To learn more about Her Circle, head to www.herhealthcollective.com slash her-circle. We have a limited number of spaces and the doors only open a few times a year. So be sure to add your name to the no obligation waitlist so you are the first to know when the doors officially reopen. We would love to know what changes, both positive and negative, have you seen in your specific industry with regard to equitable care for mothers? And kind of on the the back end of that, in an ideal world, what would need to change in your specific industry to see more equitable care across racial and economic lines? Well, I'll start there. I think for me, one of the changes that I'm really happy about is when I go, when I see at primary care and OBGs that they're asking questions about depression and risk behavior of women and just all clientele in general now, like that's become part of the makeup of your appointment. I didn't really see that five, 10 years ago. Uh, So I'm really excited about that because I think it does allow equitable care for people who may not be thinking that when they're coming into their doctor's appointment for their hurt back or their shoulder to have to start that conversation, to initiate that conversation, it opens that door. So as a counselor, I'm really excited to see that and then see that referrals being made based off those questions. That is really interesting because the reason that that began is purely financially driven, which is where right? Like the consumer has the power, you know, where people might feel like, I don't, how am I going to make these changes? And a lot of times it's where you're putting your money in supporting who you want to support. And those depression and anxiety screening questionnaires came to be a requirement to get the top dollar of reimbursement from insurance if you proved that you had done that. And it was so, so maybe the motives of the practice manager putting it might have been, you know, financially driven, but it did come down to who is advocating that there has to be um, more attention to um, depression, anxiety, postpartum depression, 
but I did have to chuckle at first when you were mentioning, I was like, it's, I'm so happy it's there. And the reason it was explained to me was you better make sure they get this done so that we get our full reimbursement because we're working amongst when I, so um, for 10 years, I was doing primary care, internal and urgent care. And I would work at practices who would limit the amount of Medicare patients, practices who refuse to accept Medicaid, not only because of the, uh, the cuts in reimbursement. I also had worked for a provider who was quite blunt about the population that she wanted to be treating. And so she wanted to be treating a wealthier, higher socioeconomic class. And I'm no longer with that practice for a lot of reasons, but the, the positives are still in us as a consumer, like what are we demanding? And whether that's within the insurance model or in selecting doula, empowering access to education for more um, BIPOC professionals. And I do think that on, on the larger scale, of how these changes can come across of, again, getting access to the finances, getting access to the education. For me, it comes down to um, universe, you know, I support universal healthcare, universal um, preschool, dedicated maternity leave, paternity leave. I think that some of the ideas of elevating will come from if we're you know, we are only as good as the lowest of our lows. And so looking at disparities with not only health, but again, where we're living, the quality of our homes and what we're exposed to, are we looking at everyone's water sources? So that is where the the big fundamental changes will happen. But I I really do get kind of more like it, it has to be where the money and where the voice is. We're hitting on is more of us moving more into looking into the the social determinants of health and how each of those parts kind of affects the way your health is. So if you have a better education, you may have more resources in order to get these things. If you are living a more healthy lifestyle with diet and exercise, you're taking care of yourself. If you're taking care of your mental health, if you are in a nice environment. We know through several studies that if you live in a more urban environment versus more rural, you're more than likely to have asthma. If you are working and all of these kinds of things and the extra stress in terms in on top of motherhood can affect you. So I think it's more about people who are caring for others, looking into what factors would make them live better, healthier lives in all realms. And then you hit on another thing, just I guess we both are kind of on this universal healthcare tip, but like the political determinants of health are also intersected with the social determinants of health. So making sure that we do have this advocacy out there where we are pressuring our legislators to move forward. And a lot of times that bigger voice comes from needs to come from us healthcare workers instead of the big pharma and the insurance companies. So figuring out how we can leverage that to advocate for these women is very important. Did anyone have anything further to add to that question? Okay, well then we'll move on to our next question. And in regard to finding something that you're, you have a passion about or that you want to see changed, many times people feel that their little voice won't make a difference. And we're here to say, no, that's not the case. You can make a difference. Are there any books documentaries or other resources that you would highly recommend to someone who would like to begin making changes and raise awareness of this issue in their own community. I uh, was thinking 
the Black Mom, the Black Mamas Matter Toolkit uh, was just recently released, and I put together a handout for I think you're going to put it in the show notes later um, that has that resource on it and a few other resources. But I think that that toolkit really dives, takes a deep dive into our healthcare system, the politics of our healthcare system, and how it's reflected in communities that may not have the social economical benefits that others do, urban and rural. And so I would suggest if you're going to look at something for some info, that might be a good place to start. For something that I've found helpful for my learning and my unlearning and my awareness, but kind of fundamentally is the Ally Nudge from Dr. Um, Kaday and also Anti-Racist anti-racism daily from Nicole Cardoza. And I can share on the chat um, links to those. And then also um, everymothercounts.org, which I think worked with the Black Mamas Initiative uh, in what was kind of an open letter and got some weight behind um, some legislation that is just introduced for the, the Momnibus bill for addressing many of the arms of what we're talking about today for closing the gap in maternal health disparities. So based on everything that you guys have talked about and mentioned, it's clear that you are all passionate about creating more equitable care across racial and economic lines. Do you have ideas on how to make this a more widespread concern for people outside of like the books and the resources, what is another way? What are some actions that a person could take if they would like to have an impact on bringing awareness to this issue and influencing change and influencing the people maybe in their direct sphere? I think one thing that people can do is talk about their own experiences. I feel like so often we only say like the good parts of our birth or only say the good parts of our pregnancy. And you know, regardless of skin color, I think just bringing up the fact that there are issues at play and like what, you know, a couple questions ago about not respecting women's boundaries or bodily autonomy. If we as mothers say like, this happened to me and this wasn't okay, that's going to allow someone else to be like, oh, that happened to me too. That isn't okay. I'm allowed to feel the way that I feel and do something about it. And then maybe it trickles down to somebody else who says, okay, if this happened to two people that I know, I'm going to advocate for myself and say, and when I see something like that coming, I'm going to say, hey, hold up. Let's not, I don't want to do that. And hopefully we just start sharing these experiences and, you know, build a better atmosphere, you know, one person at a time, one birth story at a time. I think that's great. That's what my mission has just been to knowledge is power and is specifically in what I do. Little things, again, like urinary incontinence, things that tend to truly limit women for the rest of their lives are so easily fixable most of the time. And women just don't know there's anything they can do about it. So I've been taking any opportunity that I have to do a Zoom call, whether it's with Camp Gladiator or Burn Boot Camp or whatever, it doesn't matter. And then can I, you know, when they're like, can we record this? Of course, like just tell women, however you want to tell them that there's, there's something that they can do. So for me, again, across racial boundaries, just having these stories of no, it's not normal. And yes, there's something that you can do. And yes, you have access to it through insurance. And, you know, just all you need to do is, I mean, in physical therapy, there's direct access. So you can just go see a physical therapist yourself. Like you don't even have to go back to the doctor if you don't want to. Of course, the physical therapist should send back to the doctor. 
if it's something not appropriate, but just knowledge is power and just a simple knowledge. So whether it's a conversation, a story shared, a patient anecdote, just, and it's uh, in my particular profession, these things tend to be embarrassing. So they're often not spoken. So I just, I'm that blunt, like this is how it is type of person and just normalizing the conversation within women to women, friend to friend, family to family. I think that is how we can just individually impact even through our patients, but through our friends as well. You never know who they're going to talk to or when the conversation is going to be overheard. So both within the profession and then just in our daily lives, just to be able to give women knowledge and, um, and empower them to help themselves. I agree. I think that the theme from what everyone has been saying is basically providing education, advocacy, and support. We need to let people know that there are resources out there that they may not know about, like physical therapy or doulas or just different things like postpartum care, mental health, those resources are out there and they may have issues after birth or during their pregnancy or in between. There needs to be education about different phases in life. A lot of times women believe that they're alone and a lot of times these experiences are quite universal. There needs to be advocacy to increase access to all of these different things. A lot of people may do well in group visits and things like that. So there needs to be opportunities for that and opportunities to increase the workforce. And we also need to have ways to support one another, like through the Her Health Collective, where women are coming together to try to share their experiences. Because there are a lot of times where certain things may happen in a woman's life and they think they're the only ones, like they may have a miscarriage, they may have postpartum depression, they may have preeclampsia. And they're not talking about these things. But when women come together and they start talking about it, they realize there's a lot more people going through that than they imagine. So having these conversations is important and they can come together and brainstorm on how to impact other people in their community as well. Yeah, I definitely agree that the woman to woman connection is going to change this situation for the better in many aspects, especially at like the Her Collective and other support groups within our community. You know, if we can get the word out about these types of resources, I think it's just such a benefit. As a mom after each pregnancy, I sought out a support group because I knew I needed that. And um, I would not often see myself represented at many of the groups. I might be one of 50 moms there who was not white. And um, I think the more when we're in our groups, if we can look around and ask ourselves that question, like, where are those moms? How can we connect with those moms? Is our group doing enough to reach a diverse crowd? Because as we talked about here, diversity should be valued. And maybe there's that mom out there who just doesn't have the finances or um, maybe the, even the internet sometimes is a struggle for some people. So seeing if we're advertising enough and getting out there enough to let women know that there are people out there for them, there's good work being done and um, stress can be reduced by spending time with others who are going through your same situation. So these groups should be valued. Nicole's comment about gathering and stress reducing and sharing the experience. I, I loved learning how when women are venting, it in fact elevates our oxytocin, which will calm down our stress hormone. And that does not happen when men get together and vent. And that is why 
when we are sharing these experiences is for our health benefit. They don't need to do the same thing, but it's proven. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. I was chuckling too. I was like, that's what happens. <laughs> we did have a question come in. What is the role of white birth workers in advocating for equity? I'll answer this one because this very much applies to me. I think that as a white doula, my job is to validate and you know not say what somebody else's experience is. I'm able to present facts. I'm able to present, present education and I'm able to let people vent to me and increase their oxytocin and let this be a learning experience. I try to be really transparent that I don't know what it's like to be a Black woman. I don't know what it's like to have all these obstacles because of my race. And I don't try to stray away from those hard conversations, but I also encourage the conversations to happen as needed. I really try to find, you know, different providers, make sure that when I'm listing providers, I don't just list one or two. I try to list a wide variety. When I'm listing support groups, I try to find a wide variety to make sure that everyone feels seen in my list of breastfeeding support groups, for example. And I think that's a really powerful way to just show that, you know, I'm able to help advocate for change. I think just in a bigger spectrum, I totally agree with what was said. I think just being, in all honesty, using your privilege for good and kind of just using your emotional intelligence to listen and connect and advocate when you can Although we would not like for certain voices to be heard more than others, sometimes they are just realistically in the U.S. So, so trying to figure out how you can be of service and help one another. And, and even if that's just by validating their experience, that's okay. We are so grateful for everyone coming together. It was such a great conversation. It was. And uh, like I said, we're extremely grateful to all of you who have participated today in, in this very important discussion and it's only through continued education, outreach, discussions that we'll be able to shed light on the broken and inadequate care that's, that's plaguing moms. So thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedules to join us and the rest of professionals and moms that are on this, this roundtable. I hope you all enjoyed it. That was such a valuable conversation on an extremely important topic. Every mother should be able to receive quality, respectful, and culturally appropriate maternity care. But the truth is that not all childbearing people enjoy the same access and privilege. Our quarterly roundtables bring the HER expert panelists together to share their knowledge and discuss important health topics that affect mothers. There are always numerous takeaways from these conversations. We gathered three key highlights for you, but there were many golden tidbits mentioned within the discussion that may have resonated with you, but didn't make our recap. If this is the case, we are thrilled that our experts shared something that impacted you. Okay, here's our three takeaways. Number one, in 1948, Article 25 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights went into effect, stating that it is an essential human right that everyone has the opportunity to have the highest attainable level of health, and that this is the definition of health equity. The COVID pandemic, amongst many things, has shown that there are disparities out there and people are not receiving the same quality of care. The pandemic has made us more hyper-aware that we need to figure out a way to make the healthcare industry more equitable. 
Dr. DeRowan stated, quote, with the way that our healthcare is set up, it is more for the privileged and we need to figure out how to get all people the care that they deserve, end quote. Number two, many times women are placed in the position where they need to strongly advocate for themselves because providers are not always utilizing and listening to a woman's voice. We need to continue to encourage women to be their own best advocates and share their experiences, therefore opening up communication and helping women feel more comfortable advocating for themselves. The other side of this is educating providers, helping them to realize that there needs to be a partnership between the client and the clinician, rather than the clinicians maintaining a blind ignorance of knowing what's best for the patient because they are the clinician. Number three. The experts discussed the importance of caretakers looking more into the social determinants of health, which is briefly explained as the conditions that determine a person's health and quality of life in the areas where a person lives, works, and plays. Caretakers who understand these factors for all groups would help individuals live happier, healthier lives. The panelists also made a point of saying that political determinants of health are intersected with the social determinants of health. Political determinants of health are briefly defined as how groups of power, such as institutions, ideological positions, and more, influence health within different political systems and cultures. Since these two determinants of health intersect, there needs to be advocacy where we are pressuring our legislators to move forward on changes that would make our healthcare system benefit more than just the privileged and comply with Article 25 of Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the overall definition of health equity. The big voices for advocacy need to come from the healthcare workers instead of insurance companies and pharma. Hi, five friends. We had so much fun with you. Be sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. And don't forget to leave a review. We love hearing what you have to say. Until next time, stay true to you.